Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the final session of the first day of the meeting. Uh, two announcements. In your pack, you have a form saying what you thought of it. Uh, if you're not here tomorrow, would you mind filling it in? This is the sort of forces that stop you using USOL, make you fill in a form when you go to a lecture. Uh, at four o'clock, there will be a routine fire alarm. It is a test. It goes three times. It's very loud, and it's not true that some of the college staff have never heard it. Uh, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce our first speaker of the, of the last session, which is Mr. Peter Starling, talking about war as the only proper school of the surgeon. Um, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Um, I would like to thank Sam for organising the fire alarm. I was a bit concerned about having this slot first thing after the tea break and people start dropping off, but Sam said he would organise something so that you didn't. Um, I want to talk today about how surgery developed during the First World War, but it's not my intention to discuss facial surgery or anaesthetics associated with that. There's somebody more qualified than me to talk about that straight after. So let me first set the scene. The First World War was a turning point um, for the Army Medical Services and particularly for the Royal Army Medical Corps. We, the, the criticism that the medical services received post-Crimean campaign is well known and the Royal Commission afterwards. Perhaps what is not so well known is the fact that after the South African War of 1899 to 1902, again, we suffered severe criticism. The new Royal Army Medical Corps um, had much criticism about the way it operated and the, about the way it was organized during the South African campaign. So what needed to happen was there needed to be some reorganization and driving much of this reorganization was this man, Alfred Keogh, meteoric rise through the senior ranks of the REMC. He, um, he had been a, a colonel in 1902 and by 1904, was a major general in 1905, a lieutenant general, as the director general of the Army Medical Services. And he said, if ever we were to go to war again in Europe, or go to war in Europe, the way weaponry was developing and the casualties we could expect, we as a medical services would not be able to treat them. So part of the reorganization was exactly where surgery would take place. At the start of the First World War, it was envisaged that this would take place in the stationary and the base hospitals. Um, and these were situated some way from the front line, as you can see indicated on this, this, um, this First World War schematic of the evacuation chain, indicated by the red arrows. In 1914, the stationary hospital had 200 beds, and the general hospital had 520 beds. Both these hospitals were found mainly back at the coast, and as the war progressed, the size of these hospitals would expand dramatically. Between them and the front line was the Casualty Clearing Hospital, but it was a hospital in name only. The Casualty Clearing Hospital was organized as part of the reforms post-South Africa. It was allocated one per division, it had no transport of its own, and it had limited equipment comprising two surgical panniers, a field fracture box, and a portable operating table. It had the capacity to treat 200 cases, but not on beds, on stretchers on the floor, 
and it had no female nursing staff. Surgery was only performed at the Casualty Clearing Hospital in Extremis. Its name gave a false impression of what it did. Now, in October 1914, Kitchener had sent out Colonel Arthur Lee to France and Flanders to report on the medical services and how they were performing. And one of the criticisms he had was about this casualty clearing hospital, that it wasn't a hospital, it just cleared the casualties, it checked their dressings, gave them some pain relief, and then evacuated them rearward. So what Lee recommended that we change its name to the casualty clearing station. And this was done at the end of 1914. But early on, an eminent surgeon, also having thoughts on the role of this casualty clearing station, as it now was, and the fact that surgery should be performed closer to the front. Uh, if they did do that, then lives could be saved. And this is this, um, this eminent surgeon, Sir Arthur Bowlby, his painting's just outside, and I've now just had a look at his chair as well. Um, he was consulting surgeon to the British Expeditionary Force, and, and he realized early on that the wounded were dying from want of early surgery. And the time it took to evacuate them back to the stationary and the base hospitals and then wait to be operated on. And he took his concerns back to the war department with the result that in January 1915, the scope of the casualty clearing station suddenly changed. There, were there was more surgical equipment supplied. There were beds to put the patients on, no more lying on stretchers. And the DGMS gave approval as well for more operating to be done. And shortly after that, we started to put female nurses into the casualty clearing stations. So really, this change of name was, was done too soon. We should have left it as it was. As the war progressed, so would the size of the casualty clearing station. And by the time of the Somme campaign in mid-1916, 14 CCSs in, in the Somme area were each capable of taking up to 1,000 cases. And they were using eight operating tables at one time. By 1917, there was an instruction promulgated what surgery could be carried out in the field ambulance and the RAP, which is further forward from the casualty clearing station. And you can see, if you can read this, it, it talks about um, amputation, it talks about hemorrhage, and it talks about the use of the Thomas splint and more about the Thomas splint um, shortly. Just prior to that, with concern for the mobility of the casualty clearing station and the fragility of the surgical equipment of the operating theatre, Colonel Cuthbert Wallace proposed that a light body, packed with all the equipment of the operating theatre, could be carried on a trailer and unloaded at a new location. And this proposal was developed by Captain E.M. Cowell. And all the contents were contained in these boxes that you can see in the lower, lower photograph arranged around the walls. And the idea was that when, it, when the CCS reached a new location, but let's not forget they didn't move very often. It was only really in the March offensive of 18 and then the advance to victory, the 100 days campaign, did the CCSs start to move. But the idea was that it would pull up at a new location, that the staff would unload all these boxes and arrange them into the new operating theatre. And then it says the trailer body could be lifted off by four men, um, whether that was then used as a supplementary store, I'm not too sure. 
So let me now um, have a look at some of these medical advances with you. And let me remind you about what Hippocrates said. And I would, I would like you to remember this towards the end of the talk as well. But I would say my personal feeling is this is surely no truer in the First World War than it was in 415 BC. So we need to have now really a quick comparison between the First World War and the South African War. In South Africa, the climate was hot and dry and the soil dry and sandy, and more importantly, the ground itself was uncontaminated by manure and was to a great extent virgin soil. The consequence was that the soil was almost entirely free from all pyogenic organisms that could infect wounds and bacterial examination that was carried out um, proved that all forms of bacteria absent from the soil. Shell wounds are extremely rare in South Africa, whilst in France they were as numerous as the gunshot wound. As a result, some surgeons who had previously served in South Africa and now found themselves operating in 1914 um, felt were of this mindset that this would be the same in 1914. There would be very little wound infection. Wounds could generally be grouped under the following headings. The gunshot wound, the, what we now call the fragment wound, but tended in the First World War to be called the shrapnel wound, and the blast injury. And, and this um, illustration from um, the National War Museum at Canada uh, illustrates the, the, both the gunshot wound and the fragment wound. What I don't propose to discuss to this audience is the dynamics of gunshot wounds. Um, but some surgeons felt that the gunshot wound was a clean wound and that no contaminants were passed into the body, into the tissues, so they felt that early closure of the gunshot wound was the norm. The fragment wounds varied in size dependent on the fragment itself, and these were the wounds that were believed to carry in contaminants into the tissues. In France and Flanders, the majority of the wounds became infected with gas gangrene, um, and the, the incidence of gas gangrene varied year by year and by location, but generally the organism was carried into the wound by soil being directly implanted into the wound carrying the causative bacilli. And it was quickly realized that there needed to be mechanical cleaning of the wound at the earliest, an excision of damaged muscles, bone fragments, and tissue, debris mob, and then, where possible, wound closure delayed, the delayed primary suture. And, of course, what you can imagine from this illustration is a, is a bullet or a fragment passing into the wound is going to take in dirty, muddy clothing, um, it, and the upper torso, it will take in bits of the soldier's web equipment, whatever, whatever is in his pockets as well. So this is all being carried into the wound and contributing to the wound infection. Later in the war, an antitoxic sera against gas gangrene was used. Various antiseptics were used during the war, including iodine, boric acid, usol, and various methods of delivery, including the well-known Carol Dakin method, um, that we have already heard about. And at one stage, it was felt that by swamping the wound with an antiseptic solution was sufficient enough to ensure non-infection. And it was because of these large fragment wounds that eventually in 1915, the shell dressing was introduced. But of course, it was not only gas gangrene that infected wounds. The causative bacillus of tetanus was also found in the richly manured soil of France. An anti-serum had been produced in 1892, 
and at the Royal Army Medical College at Millbank, a committee was formed, the Committee for the Study of Tetanus and Trench Fever, and it was chaired by Sir David Bruce. And the studies proved that the giving of a prophylactic dose was proving worthwhile. From October 1914, every wounded man was given a prophylactic dose and cases dropped dramatically, and by 1915 it almost ceased to occur. And throughout the war, a total of 11 million doses were produced by the RMC vaccine department. So what about the surgery itself? In the case of penetrating chest wounds, it was usually the involvement of the major organs and the great vessels of the chest cavity which led to fatal chest wounds, and because of this, they were less commonly seen in the medical units. In the early days of the war at the field ambulance, the wound was occluded, possibly by suture, and the patient was rested for up to 24 to 48 hours, depending on the condition, and kept warm. At the casualty clearing station, the fact that they had made it that far was felt to be a good sign, so they were all left and they were placed under the care of the physician. And within a few months, it became obvious that this was not so, and thinking changed to early surgery becoming a necessity. By 1916, some British surgeons decided that to open the chest was better, but it was not until spring 1917 that the principles of when and if this should be done was established with better results. 2% of all casualties who reached the field ambulance during the First World War had abdominal wounds, but many did not survive to reach surgery. Hemorrhage and shock were the chief causes of death in abdominal wounds, although it was initially thought that, the in, that infection was the main killer. The opening of the abdomen in wartime was not initially advocated. Generally, abdominal wounds were retained at the main dressing station or the casualty clearing station, rested for three to four days and given morphia. Rectal saline was given to combat first. Initially, mortality was 70 to 80%. And it was felt that spontaneous recovery of small perforations of the bowel would take place. By 1915, some surgeons with prior experience of abdominal surgery were advocating laparotomy, arresting hemorrhage and resecting bowel where necessary, but early results were not encouraging. The first successful abdominal operation by a military surgeon in the First World War Thanks, Sam. Two more, have we? Talk about it. <laughs> yeah, incoming. How much? Do they have between the alarms then, each alarm? Oh, is it? Um, I am afraid I can't tell you that. It's, I know that the image was in the Army Medical Services Museum, but I'm not sure who it was. Well, not the original image, but in the, uh, in the image bank, as it were. We're just waiting for two more of those.
Okay. Um, Sam's given me the, a gesture. So, uh. so by 1915, some surgeons with prior experience in abdominal surgery were advocating laparotomy. Arresting hemorrhage and resecting bowel when necessary, but early results were not encouraging. The first successful abdominal operation by a military surgeon in the First World War, where he resected two and a half feet of bowel, was carried out by Owen Richards in March 1915. And it was felt that the length of the time taken to reach surgery was a contributing factor in survival. By rapid evacuation to the casualty clearing station, lives could be saved. And eventually some CCSs, such as 32 and 44 at Brandhook near Ypres, specialised in abdominal wounds. Now when the British Army went to war in August 1914, they did so wearing a cloth cap. With trench warfare came the high incidence of head wounds. Pre-war, there had been much work carried out on craniotomy, but at the start of the war, treatment was based on the experiences of South Africa, but was flawed because the treatment was mainly for bullet wounds with few fragment wounds and little infection. There were no military neurosurgeons as such, so any surgery itself was carried out by the general surgeon. Victor Horsley, a territorial force officer and an experienced neurosurgeon, volunteered to go to the Western Front. But as is normal in the military, he was sent to somewhere else, to Mesopotamia, where he died of heat stroke in 1916. Harvey Cushing, the eminent American surgeon, um, initially came over volunteer neurosurgical teams, and then eventually when America entered the war, he came back again. And he advocated surgical intervention. And this is his classification of head wounds. Here, the, the importance of x-rays was realized in diagnosing skull involvement. The British Army decided that the patient should be operated on as early as possible in a hospital where they could be kept for three to six weeks post-op. They also advocated there should be a skilled surgeon present They also advocated that there should be a skilled surgeon present and that foreign bodies should be removed if possible. And again, casualty clearing stations um, specialised in the treatment of head wounds, number 12 and number 46 at Mendingham, just north of Poppering on the Ypres Salient. The steel helmet would help decrease the incidence of head wounds. The French had introduced it in 1915 and with the British requirement, um, they looked at the French Adrian helmet, but they found it weak. So um, John Brodie submitted his design, the main selling point being a one-piece pressed manganese steel, and this was first utilised in 1915. But it was not until the spring of 1916 that it was issued in large quantities, eventually becoming an individual issue. And it underwent various modifications, eventually being designated the Mark I helmet, and with it, the number of head wounds fell dramatically. And this, um, this helmet was donated to the Army Medical Services by Lady Bowlby um, from the estate of um, Sir Anthony Bowlby. And the provenance says that the sergeant wearing it at the time did not suffer any major injury to his, to his head when the helmet was perforated by a fragment. Early on in the war, the War Department recognised the need to have military orthopaedic hospitals. 
and Robert Jones being appointed as head of military orthopedics and the establishment of military orthopedic centers which would eventually rise to 17 in number. At the beginning of the war, fractured femurs was one of the most fatal injuries with an 80% mortality rate. The legs were splinted but inadequately so that the constant movement during evacuation resulted in movement of the fragments, pain, muscle spasm, continued hemorrhage, which meant by the time the man reached the casualty clearing station, he was in extreme shock. The introduction of the Thomas splint further forward in the chain of evacuation dramatically changed things. Extension of the limb by a halter around the boot, just here, and then the, then the whole leg held rigidly by slings and circular bandages, held, held the whole limb totally rigid. And therefore, that this, you didn't get this movement in the leg um, and the subsequent extra hemorrhage, hopefully, that had already been experienced. And by 1916, this was the method of choice for the treatment of fractured femurs. By early spring 1917, the battles of Vimy and Arras, cases arrived at the casualty clearing station in far better condition than ever previously. And these splints were applied as far forward as possible, depending on the battle, but even in the busiest of times at the advanced dressing station, and in some cases, the regimental aid post. With all these uh, um, orthopedic wounds, of course, there were no physiotherapy. The Incorporated Society of Trained Masseurs had been founded in 1900, and in 1905, they were asked by the Army Medical Services to train orderlies at Netley and at Queen Alexander's Military Hospital, Millbank. And in August 1914, the Almeric Paget Massage Service, Massage Corps was formed, which developed into the Military Massage Corps. And in 1915, this was eventually recognized by the War Department. To keep pace with all this surgery, anesthesia also needed to improve. Chloroform, as we've heard, was used in the Crimean campaign, although George Bernard Shaw said that chloroform has done a lot of mischief. It has enabled every fool to become a surgeon. But obviously that doesn't apply to this audience. So going back to this image, at the start of the war, chloroform was the agent of choice, but it was not good in extreme shock. Ether was introduced soon after, both administered in the early days by dripping onto a wire mask covered in gauze, the Schimmelbush mask, and I'm sure many of us remember. And by 1916, the Shipway Warm Ether Chloroform Insufflating Apparatus became available in the casualty clearing station. Nitrous oxide and oxygen was quick and good for small wounds, and spinal anesthesia was also available. General medical officers initially gave anesthetics, but as soon as they learned their craft, they were usually posted off somewhere to, to a, a, a battalion as a regimental medical officer. But by 1916, they established the post of specialist anaesthetists. But there was still not enough to go round. So in late no 1917 and early 1918, over 200 nursing sisters had been trained to supplement the anaesthetist. Captain Geoffrey Marshall wrote and lectured extensively on his experiences as an anaesthetist in a casualty clearing station during the war. Blood transfusion was not practiced wildly in the United Kingdom prior to World War I, but it gave war the unparalleled opportunity for its employment. 
It, it was quickly realized that transfusion of blood led to improvement of the wounded man's condition, but the methods employed were initially slow. The following methods of transfusion were used. The direct transfusion um, from artery to vein by anastomosis. The indirect method using a syringe or a paraffin tube. Two Robertsons, one American, Oswald Hope Robertson, and one Canadian, L. Bruce Robertson, the same surname, but with the same purpose to improve transfusion techniques. Oswald Robertson suggested that large quantities of blood could be taken from a donor and then modified by adding an anticoagulant, sodium citrate, and then be stored in an ice box made from ammunition boxes lined with straw. And if they did that, then the blood would last much longer and it could be taken pre-major offensive. Um, and this illustration um, shows him taking a, applying a vacuum to a bottle to take blood off a donor. And Robertson's first um, blood bank taken from this illustration from the illustrated history, uh, from, the, um, from the official history of the medical services in the Great War. And what he did was, was put a small ammunition box inside a larger one and um, packed, it, packed it with straw between the two boxes and then put ice around, if he could get ice, around the bottles. So experiences of 1914 had made it clear that the restoration of blood volume was one of the most effective steps to saving the lives of a seriously wounded soldier. And Oswald Hope Robertson was eventually awarded a Distinguished Service Order by the British for his work. But before we leave blood, we spoke earlier about venous section, but in 1915, with the introduction by the Germans of poison gas in the Ypres salient, we then found one of the best treatments for the gas gassed patient was venous section, where we would take 20 mils of blood off them to try and reduce their circulating volume. Work had been done pre-war on shock by Bayliss and Starling, who was, I have to say was no relation to me, and during the war they both sat on the Medical Research Committee on Surgical Shock, and eventually in 1917 Bayliss went to France and to 23 Casualty Clearing Station to see the work being done there by Cowell. Various work had been done with fluid replacement and keeping the patient warm and the splintage of limb fractures, all contributing to the reduction of wound shock. The improvements in x-ray certainly contributed to surgery during the war. Introduced in the late 19th century, it was used by the military on active service in the Russo-Turkish War and by ourselves, certainly during the South African War of 1899-1902, mainly for the use in locating bullets and shell fragments. It meant that the surgeon did not have to probe and prod so much today uh, to find his bullets and to find the fragments. And by the First World War, it improved so that it was more efficient, more safer, and more portable. In January 1915, mobile X-ray wagons were allocated, allocated, one to the First Army and one to the Second Army. And this number was later increased with additional mobile and fixed sets. And by 1917, most casualty clearing stations had their own apparatus. Power, though, could be a problem. Um, with these x-ray departments. But eventually, from the staffing point of view, the casualty clearing station increased its staff to run these departments. 
Now, to ensure that all this good work was coordinated, the War Department appointed consulting surgeons. In the early days, these consulting surgeons were regarded as civilians by GHQ, so they didn't tend to listen to what they were saying. Um, and they would not be informed of any upcoming offensives, so they could not make sure that their surgical assets were in place. The first two were appointed in September 1914, Sir George Makins and Sir Anthony Bowlby, and they were initially given the rank of colonel, but, but as more consulting surgeons were appointed, these two early ones were promoted to the rank of general, surgeon general. Bowlby had what he termed a roving commission, so he could, uh, and he had transport, so he could roam around the rear areas and the forward areas, looking at um, how surgery was progressing in the casualty clearing stations, the stationary hospitals, and back to the base. And their, their, um, their job was to give advice on surgery and surgical equipment, but as the war progressed, they then were accepted more for their opinion and they gave advice to commanders on the preparations for coming offensives from a surgical point of view. And they could then, um, they could then advise on the appointments of surgeons and then they then migrated down to the field ambulances to give advice on surgical technique and equipment. And we know from F Bowlby's writings that he also operated a lot. So what was the scale of the work undertaken by the Army Medical Services during the war. Luckily for us, just as today, many surgeons wrote of their work in the British Medical Journal and the Lancet and the Journal of the Royal Army Medical Corps, the, the latter established in 1903, and I'm sure many of the other medical publications that were around at the time. Now finally, as this is the centenary of, of the First World War, let me say a few words of the men and the women of the Army Medical Services. On the armistice, there was a total strength in the REMC of 163,145. 24,000 nurses of one sort or another, so that includes the voluntary aid detachments as well as the territorial force nurses and the regular nurses served throughout the war. Just over 900 medical officers and 6,130 men of the RMC were killed in action or died during the war. And almost 200 nurses were killed in action, died of disease or committed suicide while suffering from the horrors that they had been part of. These men and women of the Army Medical Services took their newfound knowledge back to their civilian hospitals at war's end, just as our clinicians today returning from operations do. So let me end now in a quote. Left to themselves, our children would scarcely acquire any education worth considering. We owe that to the school teacher. And so it is with nations once defied, defined as great, simple-minded children. For the medical profession, at least, war has been a very efficient schoolmaster. So I would ask you, was war, um, was um, Hippocrates' quote as apt during the First World War as it was in 415 BC? Thank you.
Peter in this wonderful day. We are at the moment coming towards the end of discussing the First World War. And there is one aspect of the First World War that your lecture uh, has highlighted. And that is the immense amount of experience that was acquired, not just by the senior doctors, but by the junior doctors. I just really want to make a comment. Um, over the past six months or so, I've been looking at um, an, a journal that started at the same time as the First World War, and that was British Journal of Surgery. For the first year, nothing about the war was mentioned. But thereafter, masses and masses of articles came out from the front line. So not only were the soldiers, uh, the doctors there treating patients, they were writing up results. Uh, they were carrying out experiments, some of which were funded by medical funding bodies, and they were publishing. And it was fascinating to see. There were two main sources, as you say. The Lancet and the BMJ tended to have the Bowlby's and all the rest. But if you look at the British Journal of Surgery at that time, you could see many famous names who had lieutenant, captain, and maybe colonel against their name. These were the people actually doing the work and at the same time doing research. And I just want to make one comment about um, the um, Thomas Flint. Coming from Liverpool, I was brought up on that. It was, of course, a major initiative. But I have to tell you, there was a bitter battle uh, which is mentioned in the British Journal of Surgery between those who lauded the splint and those who detested it. And it went on for many, many years. But I really wanted to say that um, it's an amazing feature that those doctors working in the front under the most difficult circumstances also had the time to write papers. And that is a tremendous credit to all of them. Um, yes, I, I mean, I quite agree. That, and certainly the, <coughs> the Journal of the Royal Army Medical Corps is, is full of a lot of these, not only surgeons, but, but the, the general duties medical officers' papers. Um, and what I found quite incredible was also that they managed to have time to run surgical conferences, which are quite well documented. So there'd be, the, you know, Bowlby and people like that would have all these conferences where surgeons were expected to go and present papers. And I, I did a thing um, earlier this year with Rory Bremner about a Scottish, um, a Scottish doctor, and, and he was encouraged to get this paper written and present it at a surgical, at a, at a you know, a medical conference. So, uh, yeah, you're quite right. You'd think, where did they find time when you see some of the, the throughput of casualties through some of these, especially the, the casualty clearing stations? Could I? just wonder if anyone in the room can answer this one. We know that, say, an infantry battalion in the First World War, they didn't go and sit there in trenches for four years. They would do maybe a few days a month in the front line, and the rest of the time they were behind the lines. They were rotated very carefully to avoid, you know, exhaustion and demoralization. Were the doctors moved around as well? Does anyone know? Did they have tours of duty? The doctor of um, the 1st 5th Battalion of the King's Own Royal Lancaster Regiment uh, went overseas... Um, 19, February 40, February 15, and he did other jobs, a division, a brigade, coming back and forwards, um, like chaplains, they were a, an asset shared around others, so they, were, they had the busy times, and they had the not so busy times, and I would imagine in the not so busy times, they would go to medical conferences and pass on the information that they had received, um, you know, in their work, they would go away knowing that battalion was in a brigade which was out of the line, would be training, doing other things, 
and then they return back again with that knowledge from the conferences. Yeah, yeah and, and of course, when they go into the rest areas, the, it, the medical officer doesn't get to rest. He's now got to do the rounds of, it, of all his men. He's got to check their feet. He's got to check all their other cough skulls and whatever that they've got. Um, but certainly looking at Army Medical Services history for the First World War, and especially from the point of view of personnel, you find some examples, especially the Territorial Force Battalions, where the medical officer had joined pre-war and he stayed with them, if he lived, for the, for the whole of the war. And, and also, don't forget, uh, in 1914, medical students left their studies and took commissions in the infantry, the cavalry, and the artillery and served with them as commissioned officers until they were ordered back to resume their studies mid-war. And then many of them went back to the battalion as the regimental medical officer. So to a certain degree, there was some posting around, but and certainly with the territorial force battalions, they, they liked to keep their medical officer, especially if he was good, because he was regarded as part of the territorial force family. Sorry, John, no. <laughs> Microphone over there. I was really interested in your discussion of blood banks. Was there any discussion at the time about there being different blood types? And if so, was that manageable in the field? Or do they just give blood to whoever needs it? Well, they, they, they were certainly aware of blood groups, but they didn't sort of group and cross-match. As, as, no, I mean, they didn't. And they wouldn't have the ability to do that. No more questions? Oh, John, John, this is someone to ask them. Sorry, the regular medical officers before the war, um, as we had this massive expansion, they went and filled administrative positions and, and moved up into places because they were trained with, the, um, uh, with military administration. Uh, one observation, and Pete knows a lot more probably than me, I learned very recently about open-heart surgery performed on a soldier who was wounded in Salonica in 1918 and got to Malta and he'd got um, a bullet floating around in the atrium, I think it was, and uh, he was getting a bit of heart failure from this. And um, Pete, can you remember the consultant surgeon, the colonel, somebody or other? Um, who went and operated with a, an American-trained lady doctor who was serving with the RMC, and she wrote it up in our journal, um, and they removed the bullet from the atrium. And I think that's probably the first documented open-heart surgery that I certainly know about, and I only learned about that in the last year. I, I can't remember that. No, no, no knowledge on that. Uh, further question at the back, microphones? Thank you very much. Um, you mentioned the way that uh, medical services crept further and further forwards during the Great War to be near the front. And I think the best example I can think of is uh, where John McRae, the Canadian surgeon, uh, wrote 
uh, Flanders Fields at Essex Farm. And the concrete bunker in which he was working is just yards from the Ypres Canal and was very, very close to the German lines. Yeah, I mean, the Essex Farm was a, a um, site of a dressing station. Um, I, uh, but the problem was, uh, you look at the term Brandhook, um, where those three military cemeteries are, and, and of course, Chavas is buried, and that's where Nellie Spindler was hit. They, they said that Brandhook was too close to the front line. They'd been trying to get the CCSs moved back, and it was only when they did get <coughs> shelled that they did, for a period of time, move them back to Remy Sidings at Lissenhook. Um, and then eventually they would move them back again to Brandhook. But they did, yes, they did creep forward as, you know, as Bowlby wanted. He wanted surgery done as far forward as possible to save, save lives. But it, as we've heard, it had its, you know, it had its disadvantages, especially from shellfire and then eventually bombing, German bombing. They can't. You, you have, to have to use the mic. Yeah. Thanks. It's not a question, is it? Working. Yeah. 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 Can't hear anything. So. Speak um, into no, a, a comment um, about your academia. I discovered recently that um, some of the research on gas warfare was actually taken from Britain onto the continent and done in France, some distance away back from the um, front line but Holding was one of the names that went over there. So uh, academia was not merely being done at the front, but it was sometimes it was being taken out there. Yeah, it was. I mean, that's, a, that's another subject of mine, is gas warfare and, and the medical response. Um, and you're right. But there was a, there was, we could be here for another 40 minutes talking about gas warfare. But that, that did cause problems, because when they did go out there, of course, they said that... Um, the, um, that Horrocks was not conducting the, the anti-gas department well at Millbank, and you know, because he, he, he didn't generate enough paperwork. Well, everyone knows Horrocks didn't like paperwork. He wanted to get on and do the work. Jolly useful having a man who discovered the oxygen dissociation curve available to come and sort out the gas problems, wasn't it? Right. Well, thank you very much Thanks indeed for that. Oh, sorry, one more. Peter Roberts. Peter, the shelling of CCSs in the Red Cross, do we uh, have any thoughts about whether that was deliberate? Um, no, it wasn't deliberate, but the problem was they were always put near railheads, and unfortunately the other side of the railhead was usually a massive great ammunition dump or a big store area. So the, And they were always well marked, and we know from the writings, um, but it wasn't deliberate. But the torpedoing of hospital ships was we, uh, the Germans said, because we carried arms and ammunitions in, in them as well. Right, well, thank you very much indeed. And we we move on to our final speaker of the day, who's Dr. Andrew Banji, talking about the role of the Great War in the advancement of facial reconstruction. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Normally, I do this talk in an hour, so I've got to hurry, but many of you will have already seen the plastic surgery exhibit organized by Brian Morgan, which was given half of my talk, so I can probably go quite speedily. I do always, though, like to start with this quotation from Lawrence Binion's famous poem, because I think one of the advantages of a meeting like this is that we are actually remembering those people who did not die 
rather than continually talking about those who did, which seems to be a recurring theme in commemoration of the First World War. But I'm going to try and outline very briefly some of the major advances that I see uh, came uh, from my old hospital, the Queen's Hospital, Sidcup, uh, and the work of Harold Gillies and his colleagues. World War I, as we've all heard, was a game changer. It was a completely different type of war from anything that the British Army, or indeed pretty nearly any other army, had ever fought, although there had been some trench warfare, of course, in the American Civil War. But most importantly, there had never been a war like this with a scale of casualties, and that is injury casualties, to the extent that there was in 1914-18. And on the other hand, a lot of the damage came from artillery rather than from bullet wounds. Here we see a trench in the Boer War. There were trenches in the American Civil War, but this really is the first time that there was any form of trench defense raised. And you can see from this that it isn't actually a terribly good trench. It's not very deep, uh, and it's not really intended as a permanent defensive position. But by the time the war had crystallized into a war from the Swiss border down to the Belgian coast, almost entirely in fairly deep trenches, this was the type of thing that produced the casualties. And here is a very famous picture by Harold Williamson showing a shell burst, throwing up not only fragments from the shells, and I always try to point out rather pedantically that shrapnel is lead ball, which doesn't cause the same injuries as shell fragments, but people in the front line were subjected to injuries from whirling bits of metal like this. You can see the size from the 35mm slide beside it, which were often red hot and were accompanied by pieces of flint on the Somme and filthy mud in Flanders. Before World War I, as we've already heard, there were three elements that were in their infancy or missing altogether. The first was a full understanding of infection. It wasn't really until the end of the First World War that people started to understand the mechanisms of gas gangrene and how to stop it. The second was that people were beginning to understand more about blood loss and shock, and as we've already heard, blood transfusion had taken the place of venesection, which in physiological terms is highly sensible. And, of course, the third is that anesthesia was in its infancy and had not really been adopted, except on a very primitive basis. The First World War brought all those three things together, and together with the huge scale of casualties encountered, led to a complete transformation in surgical practice. I'm not going to dwell on the passage of a man from the front line, though I don't think this one was going to make it, back through the hospital ships to a hospital uh, in England. Suffice it to say that although we've heard there were difficulties with transport, by the end of the war, a patient would get to the 3rd London General Hospital or to Sidcup from the front line in as little as two to three days, which is actually pretty good. What were the specific problems for patients with facial casualties? Well, the first was noted by William Kelsey Fry, who was a regimental medical officer with the Royal Welch Fusiliers, and that was, if you lie a patient on his back when they have a major jaw injury, their tongue will fall back because the muscle attachments have been lost and they will suffocate. 
and he therefore was one of the first to promulgate the doctrine that patients with facial casualties should be nursed as far as possible in a sitting position, so that didn't happen. There were nevertheless transit delays which led to the development of infection, as we've heard, that was a prime reason for the development of infection, and treatment was expectant, which meant that it had not only time for infection to take hold, but also, uh, of course, uh, for scar tissue to form and for contracture to form. And if there was not expectant treatment and there was primary closure without cleansing, the infection would be held in. And of course, all facial injuries, by definition, are going to be infected because all mouths carry bacteria. Primary closure also led to, to tissue contracture, and I'm going to talk a little more about that later. But perhaps the most important thing in facial injury terms was that there was no knowledge base. Now, you're going to say, well, there was historic plastic surgery, and indeed there was. Uh, this is the Duke of Urbino, who it is reported has had the bridge of his nose removed because he had uh, an injury to his eye uh, in a fight, couldn't see out of one eye and had the bridge of his nose removed so he could see across the bridge of his nose to make sure no one was poisoning him from his blind side. There was, of course, a tradition dating back into the depths of history in India, but picked up by Tagliacozzi in Italy in the 15th century, uh, showing nasal reconstruction using an attached pedicle from the arm with a very complicated splinting system to keep it there. Uh, and, of course, then there was also work that was being done by people like Keegan in India, who probably was the most honest of all of the surgeons pre-war in explaining why things went wrong, or at least admitting that they did. In 1915, in France, uh, facial casualties were already becoming a serious issue, and the French uh, Service de Santé decided that it was going to establish a series of military hospitals to deal with facial injury. And this shows the distribution of them. There were many. As far as I can understand, none of them ever talked to each other. And that perhaps was a stultifying factor in the development of French surgery, as we shall see. But perhaps the key to British surgery was the appearance of Auguste Velladier, Charles-Auguste Velladier, who was a dentist of American-French extraction, who had volunteered his services to the British Army and has wor was working in Boulogne doing some basic repairs. But because Valadier was not medically qualified, he required the services of a medically qualified person to supervise him in a British military hospital who would not allow unqualified surgery to happen. Harold Gillies, shown here at university, was one of these curious polymaths who was not only a very clever surgeon, he was an ENT surgeon, of course, uh, he was also a very good violinist. He'd rowed in the Cambridge Blue Boat in 1904. He was a very good amateur golfer and had played for England. Uh, he had won the Royal Cup at St. George's in 1912. Uh, and so, therefore, not only was a very clever man, but a polymath. Like all polymaths, rather strange, perhaps, in personality and addicted to practical jokes, which is clear from his medical school career. At the start of the war, he was drafted by the Red Cross to France and ended up looking after Valadier in Boulogne. And becoming fascinated with the whole idea of plastic surgery, decided that he was going to organize it. He looked at the French texts 
Two of them by Nilotan and Lombardin showed series of operations, particularly for nasal reconstruction. But Gillies, in going through them, was not impressed because they were recipe books, if you like, without good pictures and certainly without any end results. There was no one to tell him or anyone else whether the surgery had actually been successful. So Gillies went to see Hippolyte Moristin in Paris. Moristin had developed a reputation before the war for facial reconstruction, or at least, should I say, for facial surgery. And I'll remember that when I come back to it. Uh, but in fact, Moristin was a very individualistic character, and although he accepted Gillies in the operating theater once, he refused to have him back and closed the door in his face. He had the same attitude to his colleagues, saying of the dentists, I will only want them as mechanics and I will call them when it pleases me. So he worked in isolation and in fact when one listens to the stories from the other French units, exactly the same was true. These men were doing the work but they never talked to each other in their different units or indeed within their same units. And Gillies quite clearly picked this up as an issue and he decided he was going to do something that would be different in Great Britain. He went back to Aldershot he lobbied Sir Arbuthnot Lane, the head of army surgery, to develop a specific unit for facial surgery alone. And having gained Arbuthnot Lane's agreement, he set off for the war office with a proposal not only to concentrate the doctors, but to concentrate the casualties in his unit at Aldershot. He said to a gentleman at the war office that he proposed that they print special labels for facial casualties that could be sent to France and attached appropriately so the patients would arrive. The war office official demurred and said this was much too awkward to organize and he wasn't going to do it. So Gillies went down the strand, spent 10 pounds having a series of labels printed to his design to make sure that the casualties arrived and he took them back to the war office in a parcel and asked they be sent to France. As he put it, no one was more surprised than I was when casualties started to arrive at Aldershot bearing my labels. <laughs> so he had elucidated the first point, which I think is very important in the whole of military surgery, and as Pete has pointed out, was important for orthopedics. You concentrate not only the staff in one place, but you concentrate the patients in one place. But things were to change. The 1st of July, 1916, well known to all of us here as the first day of the Battle of the Somme was a watershed in the development of facial injury because 2,000 patients arrived instead of the 200 that Gillies had expected. And one of them was Walter Ashford, uh, Ashworth who'd gone over the top with the Bradford Pals in the second wave of the attack and had not even crossed the British front line. And is seen here having his antiseptic treatment Patients would sit with the kidney dish under their chin and the nurses with a Higginson's syringe or an enema syringe would wash the wound out with sterile water or hypochlorite. Ashford made a good primary recovery, although he was left with a slightly awkward smirk. Other men arrived from that day as well who are perhaps key in the idea of reconstruction, but I just want to dwell briefly on the 1st Newfoundland Regiment because it gives an idea of the scope of, of casualty, let alone facial casualty. A mine went off at beaumont Amel 10 minutes early and the Newfoundlanders went over the top with the Germans back in their trenches ready to expect them. In the assault, there were this number of people. 
The casualties were this number of people, and the roll call the following day numbered 68 out of nearly 800 men who had uh, taken part in the attack. And one of those was this chap, George Stone, uh, who, again, as you realize from the previous one of Walter Ashworth, this is a pastel done by Henry Tonks, and you can go and see the original upstairs later. But Stone was to undergo a series of reconstructive operations, Tonks was to draw the diagrams, and the end result was reasonable, although it has to be said that Gillies said at the end of his uh, time at Sidcup that he himself was not satisfied with Stone's progress, but Stone had had enough and refused further treatment. Arbuthnot Lane, therefore, was key to the development not only of Aldershot, but to the next stage. The 2,000 casualties had made Gillies realise that a bigger unit was needed, and Arbuthnot Lane decided that he would enlist the help of this young man, William Kelsey Fry, a frontline medical officer who, in fact, had been blown up uh, in the middle of the Somme campaign and had returned with shell shock to England as the only survivor of his regimental aid post. And Lane met Kelsey Fry in the corridors of Guy's Hospital and said, ah, he said, Lane, he said, I've got a job for you. I want you to go and work with Gillies to establish a new place for facial injury. Kelsey Fry, of course, was an oral surgeon by training. And he and Gillies were to get on very well. Gillies taking the soft tissues and Kelsey Fry the hard. A house happened to be available for sale Short, just outside London, in southeast London. Here it is in a print from 1829. Uh, here it is as it now is, and here it is pretty well as it was at the time of 1917 when the hospital opened. There was no money to build this brand new facial injury hospital to cope with all these patients, so money was raised by private subscription. The subscriptions started with newspaper advertisements in January 1917, and the hospital was opened in August, which I think is pretty good going. But what's very interesting is that when you read the original newspaper cuttings, not only was it to operate on these patients, but it was to develop a rehabilitation service so that men after the war would have an occupation to go back to. And I think that, to me, brings in a second issue, which is that Gillies had appreciated not only was reconstruction important, but rehabilitation was going to be important for men who had suffered severe disfigurements. Here is the hospital as it ended up, with a secondary unit seen to the right in a slightly lighter shade, uh, built in concrete where the original huts were asbestos, to accommodate the increasing needs of all these large numbers of patients. A watercolour by John Hodgson Lobley, uh, another of them is, was on exhibition outside in the dining room, uh, showing uh, the rehabilitation area. And here a series of postcards showing the hospital as it was. And what's rather curious is there are more postcards from Sidcup than there are from any other hospital, either at the base or in France. Perhaps because patients were in for such a long time, they didn't really want to send the same picture home every time they wrote to their mum. But what's also interesting about this picture, also by Lobley, is that there are two surgeons operating on two tables within that large plastic theatre at the same time. And one of the extraordinary things is that the surgeons collaborated. This was almost unheard of in pre-war practice. Surgeons did their own thing, and they fought. 
But here, there was collaboration. And as Gillies famously put it, not least after the arrival of other units, which I'm coming on to, it was more difficult to get a good case than to hide a bad one. But of course, if you're sitting with your fellow surgeon at the next table, you could say, Tommy, come over and have a look at this. The wards were spacious and warm, and there was a big dental workshop. Additionally, beds were pulled in from round and about because it was not possible to keep people in all of the time and then wait until the next, they were ready for the next stage. So a whole series of convalescent beds were developed. This one, Kelsey Fry and Gillies found out in Swanley, about three, four miles away. But indeed, a whole series of private houses were pressed into organization, and over a 1,000 beds were eventually available uh, for uh, surgery and convalescence. And this is another lesson. If you want to get experience and pass it on, you have to concentrate all your experts in one place. So Gillies, having got the British surgeons into Sidcup, here they are, together with Henry Tonks in his bowler hat at the back, also managed to arrange the transfer of the Australians and of the New Zealand sections together with the Canadian section. And just as a sideline, what's interesting about that in terms of military organisation is that the head of the Australian unit was a colonel, whereas Gillies was actually only a captain to start with, although he was promoted to major. But Colonel Newland deferred to his junior colleague, saying that he knew for, far more about facial injury than Newland did, and he was not going to interfere with medical management. And Gillies remained the clinical head of the service. So what sort of things were done? Well, let's start with a mistake. This is a man who's had an attempted nasal reconstruction in Birmingham. It has failed. Why has it failed? Because the flap is unsupported, also, in fact, because it wasn't lined. And it's also been taken out of the hairline. And you can probably just see on the right-hand side of that picture uh, that the tip has got a hairy, uh, a hairy uh, appearance. Not very good. So Gilly's first move is to replace normal tissue in normal position. And he did that and then brought up tissue from elsewhere to fill the gap. And a whole series of operations were done on our friend Leonard Tringham. And they end up with a nose with a poor contour, improved with a cartilage graft, improved further with a further cartilage graft, and ending up with quite a reasonable appearance. Although, of course, there was a problem with the eye, which has been lost, and a problem because there is also loss of the zygoma, which inevitably left the eye socket in a lower position. Here is another man, William Spreckley, here on the very left of the picture at the back. Uh, there he is, and here he is after he has had his nose taken off by a large uh, piece of shell fragment. And what you can see in the bottom pictures is that Gillis has actually used a French technique, taken a piece of cartilage, split the tip so that it has an arrow shape so that it can form the two uh, nasal wings, and then that is rotated down over the nose, uh, looking rather like an elephant's trunk, looking absolutely ghastly, of course, until the edema settles, and the end result is really quite good. And here is Spreckley, shown in a later picture uh, with his family, uh, and as an old man uh, after the Second World War. 
And I think you'd agree that this is a pretty reasonable result. But two lessons were learned from these two men, that you cannot put a skin flap down over a nose without support, and it must be lined, otherwise it will fail. And it was this sort of case that Gillies and his colleagues realized was the death of French plastic surgery because they had done none of these things and they realized the techniques they were trying to work from out of the books simply didn't work. And I think it's quite extraordinary, therefore, that they had to reinvent everything and start from scratch. The tube pedicle is perhaps one of the most famous inventions of Sidcup, and here are three different ones. Uh, and this is the man who had it done first, Abel Seaman Vicarage, injured on the battle, uh, in the Battle of Jutland on HMS Malaya, uh, which was hit by a shell on the starboard six-inch gun battery at 4.58 p.m. on the 31st of May, 1916. All of his compatriots were burned because the cordite was stored on deck, contrary to naval regulations. And as a sideline again, it's interesting to note that the losses of capital ships at Jutland from ammunition explosions were because the flash shutters were left open to speed up the supply of ammunition. But Vicarage reached Sidcup, a huge chest fat was raised, and Gillies noted that the edges of the big flap coming up from the neck curled up as skin does if you cut it, and he thought if he sewed the edges together, it would stop infection getting in to the transplanted skin. But he also fortuitously discovered that the blood supply to the flap was much improved. And Vicarage ended up with a perfectly reasonable appearance. He also had his eyelids reconstructed because in the first picture you can see that there is gross lurlid ectropion particularly, and Vicarage in fact could not close his eyes at all. Another seaman called Yeo, a warrant officer on the war spite, uh, was injured and Gillies decided to do the same thing in a slightly modified form. Here he has drawn on the photograph so that he can be reminded of how he did it to show other people at a later stage. And the burned area is going to be excised and replaced with what I would call a Lone Ranger mask flap uh, with eye uh, holes cut and indeed eyelid holes cut as well. And the final appearance of Yeo in the notes is not bad. There are later photographs, although rather blurry, that show that he had a very good result. But the most important thing that you can see again from this picture is that on the right-hand side, he can close his eyes. But Gillies did not always succeed. This is Ralph Lumley, an RFC pilot who had crashed on his first solo flight at Uphaven even before he had left England. And this is the Tonks pastel, which you can see upstairs, which illustrates the lividity of Burns. And here is the photograph. And Gillies raised a similar large skin flap, but it became necrotic. The face area became infected, and Lumley died as a result. Gillies had been pressurized by his patient into operating too early. And as a result, he articulated a new principle which was never do today what can honorably be put off until tomorrow. Wallace is a man, another airman, a Canadian artilleryman acting as an observer who had a major facial injury from petrol. You can see that there is gross contracture, that there are huge areas of the face involved, and Gillies decided to try a free flap from the buttock. It didn't work, and a series of watercolors show the necrosis of the flap from the center, which perhaps you might expect. So 
numerous tube pedicles were raised, and from this dreadful appearance, this reasonable appearance was constructed. Another major principle was to restore normal tissue to normal position, rather like the case of Tringham, but here in a patient who has had primary closure where there is major tissue loss. And of course, you end up with a very distorted uh, uh, face, uh, and Gilly's first move is to cut the scars and let the tissue flop back to where it should be, see what the gaps are like, and then fill them up. And I think, again, not a bad result from that. And here is another case where skin contracture has occurred after primary closure in Sydney Beldham. Uh, and again, the end result is very reasonable. Uh, and Beldham, in fact, went on to become Gilly's chauffeur after the war. So he was obviously satisfied with the service his surgeon had provided. This is an inst instance of how to move the right tissue to the right place. Button has lost his upper lip. Note how the flap has this time been taken quite deliberately out of the hairline to reconstruct the upper lip because a moustache will grow on it and it will help to conceal the deformity. And there is the flap in place. By the same token, if you have complete loss of both lips, you take a flap out of the hairline to reconstruct the upper lip, but you take a flap that isn't out of the hairline to reconstruct the lower lip and end up with, in fact, quite a reasonable appearance. But what's fascinating about Green's case is that these watercolours by Herbert Cole, a New Zealander, show that this man had red hair. You'd never have known that from the photographs. That just is a little detail that struck me very forcibly. But the end result in a watercolour actually is very realistic and I think represents a supremely good result, not least because facial disfigurement was not a good thing. And, of course... Masks were made for major defects, and this is a cartoon drawn at the 3rd London General Hospital of Derwent Wood. Uh, in uh, France, Anna Coleman Ladd was making masks for soldiers, uh, and here is one of them, which came back from America to me and is now with Bapras, to convert this sort of patient into this sort of patient. But Gillies tried this and realized that the soldiers hated these masks and anyway they were pretty boor, poor in terms of concealing a deformity and they were very obvious. So although masks were made at Sidcup, uh, Gillies would take a patient like this and try and reconstruct them. If he could not, the patient ended up with a mask and we're going to see in a minute the transition from a man to what Gillies termed a man now respectable enough to become a blind man. And in his 1958 book, he appends this little addendum in italics, which I think is uh, uh, very salutary. But there were major reconstructions that were done that actually did work. This is a chap called Thomas. Note the date on this, 6th of November 1918, so only five days before the war actually finished. He sustained his injury a couple of days before this photograph was taken. And here is a watercolour showing again the extent of this injury. In France, that would have been masked. There's no question about it. In England, a series of reconstructions lasting, as you will see, until 1924 produces a quite respectable result. The epithelial outlay technique was an adaptation of a German surgeon's technique, well, he was a Dutch surgeon, Johannes Esser, 
Uh, and we can see here from the detail how a foreign body is deliberately implanted under the skin. It causes a reaction. It causes stretching. You can then evert the flap to create a new eyelid. And the patient can blink and will not suffer from chronic conjunctivitis or corneal ulceration. Bone grafting was also done. Uh, Samuel Gardner, a New Zealander, uh, has his soft tissue injuries drawn out by Gillies on the Tonks pastel. Again, you can see the pastel upstairs. Quite a reasonable result. But look at the diagram at the bottom. This is a graft done without fixation, and it failed. And when Gardner came back to see Gillies in the 1950s, it was very obvious that it had failed. But Gillies allowed his colleagues to experiment, and he always was happy to seek advice uh, when things didn't go right. And as you can see here, Arbuthnot Lane himself came down to demonstrate the principle of wire fixation. And although the wires apparently were very thick, Gilbert Chubb pioneered the technique to such an extent that a failure became rare. Cartilage grafts were also used. Um, it's very interesting that because cartilage is slippery, occasionally it, it got misplaced. In other words, they dropped it on the floor and it was picked up when they found it and washed and used. But equally well, what's also interesting, although you could not do uh, bone grafts between patients, you could do cartilage grafts. And there is evidence from the case notes that a number of grafts were taken that were much too large for necessity and therefore were shared with other patients. The next important principle is to keep a clear record. And Gillies was quite clear that not only was the surgery to be done, but records were to be kept that would enable people to learn from the experience. This is actually, in Gillies' handwriting and a little slip in the notes, probably the first temporal artery flap. But note how not only there is a photograph, but it has been drawn upon, there are diagrams, there are actually plaster casts which were used to model the uh, flap sizes. You could draw off that cast the flap on a piece of paper, and you could then use that as a template to make the flap itself. And the end result, as you can see, is quite spectacular. Tom Kelsey made plaster casts and also made moulage. Uh, and of course, the famous illustrator, because illustration is part of the technique of teaching, were done by Henry Tonks, both in pastels and in diagrams, of which there are many dozens in the case notes. Daryl Lindsay came to help. He was an Australian and drew mainly for the Australian section, and his watercolours are very detailed and perhaps don't have the atmospheric quality that Tonks's pastels have, uh, and neither do Herbert Coles, but these tiny watercolours, which are only three inches by two inches in size, are very detailed and, I think, very lifelike. Stereo photography was tried. If you unfocus your eyes at the back, you can probably see the stereo image, but they abandoned this because it was honestly of no use compared to the standard five pictures, face on, two laterals, and two obliques. X-rays were used extensively. This is the dental X-ray department, and you could see not only the shell fragments or the uh, uh, bullet fragments, but also the extent of bone loss or dislocation. And the dental workshop produced large numbers of prostheses and splints. And this is a page from Archie Lane's album, now in the Batpress collection, showing a whole series of different splints. And this, a splint, an alignment splint, which was designed by Lane himself. 
Anesthetics were important, and this slide showing Gillies in his dress uniform, he liked to be photographed, also shows Rubens Wade, who was Gillies' first anaesthetist. Wade pioneered anesthesia in the sitting position, but it was not good. As you can see, uh, Gillies got irritated by the fact that the patients would wake up and then start to try and have a conversation. Uh, all the while, Tonks is drawing away and uh, being rude about the whole uh, atmosphere. Uh, and so, uh, what was to happen? Well, the thing to happen was that tube anesthesia would be invented. And uh, just touching on the anesthetic comments that were made earlier, uh, you wonder what's in this bottle of the shipway apparatus, and if we blow it up, you can see that it is, in fact, chloroform. What's very interesting, of course, is that ether makes patients terribly sick. And if you have patients with facial wounds, as they first discovered in transit in the English Channel when it was rough, being sick when you had a facial wound was not terribly nice, and it was certainly not terribly helpful for wound healing. And here is a picture of one of the first tube anaesthetics being administered, not actually a wide bore tube with the anaesthetic going in and out, which was pioneered by uh, Ivan McGill here on the left, who didn't actually arrive at Sidcup until 1919, uh, but uh, was developed because the surgeons didn't like going to sleep uh, because they were in the way of the expired uh, air and blood and everything else uh, when the patient breathed out. <coughs> but there was more to Sidcup than just the surgery. I think that the inclusion of the surgeons, this is Gilbert Chubb at the bottom, and uh, it, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's Rumsey at the bottom, but you can see Harold Gillies in his hat at the top, with the patients, indicates a rapport that the surgeons had with the patients, which again was unusual, but perhaps not so unusual because they were there over such prolonged periods. But rehabilitation, as I said at the beginning, was an important part of the patient's recovery. And the patients were taught how to make toys. Uh, the toy ma toys made at Sidcup were in fact judged to be among the best in London by the Evening Standard and were sold at sales of work uh, which were visited by the Queen and the various princesses. And I recently acquired these two necklaces made by William Hearn of the Northumberland Fusiliers, who had been a patient at Sidcup and uh, was taught how to do this. And if you look at very closely at these beads in the necklace, you can see that they are made from cut-up bits of cigarette carton. But nevertheless, they were sold for a profit uh, in the sales of work. And embroidery was done, though while Bill Hollins, here seen on the right as part of the football team, uh, which uh, uh, was quite a violent group, and Hollins certainly was quite a violent man, and smashed the ward up after his 50th operation, having got hold of some illicit, illicit alcohol, was not entirely happy that he had done these women's work. And their preservation is because he never allowed them to be seen, and they were shut away in a drawer. Patients were taught... Poultry farming. You can go and be a poultry farmer somewhere quiet in the country, nowhere one, where no one will see you, as indeed being taught cinema projection was quite a popular occupation. But there was recreation. The football team seen here won all of its matches and the fights afterwards. Perhaps more gentlemanly, here is a photograph of the cricket team, which I didn't know existed until August of this year when somebody sent it to me, a relative sent it to me. And likewise, uh, this uh, patient, Joe Kassler, as you can see on the right, won the 100 yards in Sidcup, presumably in 1918, because that was the only time he was there. I had no idea that they had sports days. Perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised. But this cup was found at the bottom of the Waikato River 
in New Zealand by a police diver at a scene of crime investigation, and we have no idea how it got there. But I can report that it is now on my desk at home. <laughs> there were entertainments. This is the Thespian Society in 1919, and you can see at the bottom there are these facetious advertisements which were designed to raise spirits. Uh, are you satisfied with your face? If not, visit the beauty parlor X-ray now. And underneath, are your friends satisfied with your face? Probably not. See above. And this was all something, I think, that is forgotten about the war. When we listen to the war poets and we listen to all the doom and gloom, actually a lot of these men were very positive, despite what had happened to them, and there is documentary evidence of that. They sent home postcards which were jolly. They took photographs which were jolly. They were quite jolly. Very few of them actually were miserable and depressed. Not entirely so. This is a set of postcards produced for Christmas, 1917, so that everyone on the ward had their picture in it and they could send it home to their relatives or keep it as a keepsake. Uh, and there is one for every ward as far as I can see. Then there was the recording of experience. Gillies wrote his famous book and was very honest about what went right but also what went wrong. And some of what he has written in this book would have had him up uh, before the GMC or at least have had him sued by relatives uh, when he reports why things went wrong and how. But the detail is quite dramatic, and when one compares that with the Tonks pastels and the notes, one can sometimes see further uh, than uh, Gillies has actually recorded in the book. But his detail of how to do it and why not to do it is, I think, very key to medical education today. This is the last photograph of Palmer down at the bottom right. Palmer had actually enlisted under his brother's name, under age. His brother had died in infancy, so there was no way of telling. Uh, but he went on to live a long and happy life uh, as an employee of Bromley Borough Council. What about the continent? I mentioned the continent at the beginning. It was awful. What the surgeons did was frankly diabolical, and Gillies recognized that. The patient on the left, Gunner Butt, came back as a prisoner on the war. The patient on the right, Norman Wimbush, who had produced that Christmas show with all the adverts, is there on, on the right, uh, and uh, Wimbush had been a patient of Morestin. If this was the best that Morestin could do, then I have to say I don't think that French plastic surgery was in a good state. And these are the end results after intervention at Sidcup, which, though not perfect, are certainly considerably better than the Germans and the French had left these men with. And I think that that epitomizes to me the fact that British plastic surgery developed in a totally different way. And the reason was because it was all in one place, because all the surgeons could learn from each other, because also, from a social point of view, the patients could interact with each other and the patients coming along could see what had happened to the patients who had gone before them and be encouraged by that. So what of the aftermath? The French had a, a very odd attitude. They took these five men and they paraded them at the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, as if to say to the Germans, look what you have done. Although I have to say that there are German photographs uh, after the war which show far worse things than these. But the British were different, and a lot of the men went on without any support. The girl Cassay in France uh, provided a sort of self-help group, if you like, but there was no such thing in England. Why not? because it wasn't necessary in my view. All the men knew each other, they had been encouraged by each other, they didn't need to set up a self-help organization. 
And just as an example of what happened to them, here's our friend Walter Ashworth, who went off uh, and became, went back to his old trade as a tailor. His fiance jilted him. Her best friend was Sir Paul, but she married him instead. They went off to Australia. He made a lot of money and came back to the Northwest and set up his own tailoring business. Good result. He's still got that little smirk, hasn't he, at the corner of his mouth. This is Willie Vicarage, who went back to Swansea and became a watchmaker. And here he is with his granddaughter in the 1970s. Here is Mickey Sherlaw, who started life in working life as a miner in Motherwell. And he came to Sidcup and had numerous operations. He also had quite a lot of experience with the dental prosthetic department and became rather interested in it. And lo and behold, he ends up as a dental technician down at the bottom left there, sitting on the ground. He was also in the football team. But Sherlaw, the miner from Motherwell, ends up as a dental technician in Tunbridge Wells. But there were tragedies. This is Howard, uh, who I discovered was a chimney sweep. Uh, here are some of his operations, and the last surgical notes uh, read this. Um, I think that's very sad. When you look at the date at which he was found dead by Tommy Jackson, one of the dental surgeons, uh, having suffered an overdose of alcohol. Deliberate or accidental? I just wonder whether uh, our friend Howard had decided that going back to life as a chimney sweep was going to be pretty dull after the war, but life as a disfigured chimney sweep was going to be intolerable. I don't know. What lessons, therefore, can we learn from the surgery of the Great War in terms of facial reconstruction? Firstly, Gillies realised that early specialist attention was vital to avoid the problems that he had seen in France and Germany. Secondly, that collaborative work was very important. Not only did he work with surgeons who came from ENT and oral surgery backgrounds, but with dentists, radiologists, physicians, dental technicians, who were just as important, sculptors and artists. There's no point in trying to do it on your own. Concentrate the resources in one place, and you will gain experience, which you can then spread around. Experience may outweigh seniority, as I mentioned with the Newland issue. Record what you do in a systematic way, because only by doing that will you leave a legacy that you can teach from. And it's very sad that half of the records of Sidcup, which are now here, which I found at Roehampton, are back here, but the other half came here in 1923 and were destroyed by the bomb that destroyed the Hunterian Museum in 1941. Develop from your mistakes. Admit your mistakes. If you get a bad case, work out why it happened and explain to everybody else. Take your time, never do today, what can honorably be put off to bite until tomorrow, but offer psychological support. And in this particular case, here is a West Indian man who is not going to be able to go back to his tribe uh, in Nigeria unless he has reconstruction because they will see him as something that is deformed and therefore abnormal and he will die. So how do you deal with men like that? And how do you get men through the psychological trauma of facial disfigurement? I think they got very good at it at Sidcup, reading between the lines. So the advances from the Great War, both in general and in specifics, are the management and prevention of infection, because all facial wounds were, that structure and function were equally important to manage, that techniques can be developed, particularly if you can look at other people and learn from them, uh, endotracheal anesthesia, of course, as I've said, was invented at Sidcup. But last of all, involve the patient in planning. 
This is something that's completely foreign to surgeons at the time, that they actually asked the patients what they would like. But Gillies and his colleagues would show photographs of noses and ask them to choose which one. Although it's very interesting that Joseph Picard, when asked this by Tommy Kilner, in an interview in the Imperial War Museum's archive, says in a broad Newcastle accent, I told Tommy Kilner, I don't care what sort of nose it is as long as it's a bloody nose. <laughs> Which again encapsulates the positivity of these men. But equally well, this was something from nothing, and almost nothing was impossible. And I'm not going to talk about Gillies' gender reassignment in the Second World War or after, but that is the truth of it. And what he himself said was this, we have witnessed the organization of a new surgery. The justification for such a bold assertion lies in the fact that plastic surgery had passed from the empirical to a stage based on sound principles. And of course, he himself elucidated those in his second book. So I think we owe a great debt to Sidcup because it taught us a lot of lessons. And we grow, owe a great debt to the patients who also taught us and have taught me hearing the histories from their families that there was positivity that came out of these terrible injuries. Uh, and uh, we owe a great debt to Sidcup itself, which of course no longer exists in its original form. So from the trenches to Sidcup, I leave you with the image of Sidcup as it now is. Thank you. indeed. We'll finish by 5.30, so but we still have time for some questions. Madam, mic down here. I do apologise for going a little over time. You're forgiven. There is one article that has been written about him, um, and that's all. And it was written by a surgeon. Uh, and I can't exactly remember, but if you talk to me afterwards, I can send you a copy. There we are. Brian Morgan at the back has a copy in the hall. All part of the service. Um, hi. Uh, I've been looking at uh, some other facial departments, uh, <coughs> such as the Seconds uh, Northern General at Beckett's Park in Leeds. Um, have you come across these, uh, and if, are they of a similar quality? And was there any sort of cross-pollination of ideas and techniques between departments? There is nothing that I've found in records that illustrate that anybody else did any serious uh, work other than uh, an album from the King George V Hospital in Stamford Street, which was created by a doctor called Albert Norman, uh, who illustrated a whole series of patients who'd had facial injuries and reconstructions, but we don't know who did them. 
Uh, I've not come across anything from Beckett's Park. We know that Cecil Wakeley in Edinburgh had done some facial work because he was involved with several of the casualties from Jutland who'd been burned. But what's very interesting is that by 1918, many of the patients who had been treated elsewhere, uh, Leonard Tringham in Birmingham, uh, Yeo and others from Edinburgh, and some others from other parts of the country were actually sent to Sidcup because they realized that was really the only place that they could uh, be properly managed. Its reputation by that time had spread. In fact, only uh, this week, I heard from the family of a 16-year-old civilian who had lost his nose in a bottle fight and was admitted to Sidcup in <coughs> 1921. Um, so we have no records that I'm aware of of any institutions, clinical records, case note records, of any institutions other than Sidcup. And the fact that we found them is entirely serendipitous. Brian Morgan at the back. Uh, Sidcup, I think I mentioned it briefly. Uh, it was funded entirely by private subscription. Uh, the newspaper advertisements were designed to encourage people to contribute to a fund to set the hospital up. There were a number of fairly major donators, or donors, I should say. Uh, one was a chap called Sir Heath Harrison, who was a, uh, a, an industrialist from Southampton who put in something like £50,000, which in those days was a gigantic sum of money. But once Queen Mary had become involved in the uh, planning of the hospital, because she was quite interested in this sort of thing, uh, then there was a lot of encouragement for people to, uh, to donate money. But it was entirely funded by private subscription. What's also interesting is that uh, when they ran out of money, they put out more appeals. Um, also, when they ran out of cows, uh, because the egg flip diet was very important, they had to go and buy them, so they needed money to do it. They actually sent the hospital secretary down to Maidstone Cattle Auctions. Uh, as the hospital secretary was actually Sir Charles Kenderdean, this was quite an adventure for him, because uh, he wasn't used to that sort of thing, but he reported back that there were no suitable cows to be found. I just wanted to ask from a social aspect. Um, I read that um, Gilly's biographer wrote that there was kind of a general embarrassment around facial wounds before Gilly's came about, and that this may be general, um, like a generalization, but in, in Germany and France, it was said that the, fem the kind of uglier the facial wound, the more honorable it was. And I just wondered what you thought the difference was. In well, I, I think that's certainly true in, to some extent in Germany, but the more related to um, honour wounds such as scars from duelling than wounds sustained in battle. Um, I think generally there was uh, quite a great deal of difficulty on the part of the general public in uh, accepting that there were these serious facial wounds. Those of you uh, who saw the television programme uh, on Sunday will have uh, heard that there were some park benches around Sidcup that were painted blue so that the residents would know anyone sitting on it was a soldier who'd been disfigured and they could walk past behind the bench rather than in front, so they would not be disturbed. Um, however, um, the public got used to it to some extent, and on an individual basis, it was certainly got used to. A lot of patients married nurses. Whether that was pity, I don't know, but I don't think so, because the personality of these chaps clearly shone through. Uh, but some... Let's put it this way, I don't think it's changed in the way that people react to injury now and then, 
they can be divided up into those who cope and those who don't. And those who don't struggle, whether you call this PTSD or whether it's due to a physical thing, I'm not sure. Um, but those who don't struggle uh, can be very outgoing and actually very difficult in a social setting because they really don't give a damn. And I heard a wonderful story of how Joseph Hickey, an Irishman, came back from a trip to London uh, with the tale to his ward sister that he had uh, lost his nose, which had fallen off and been carried away by a dog. Um, and uh, he, in fact, hadn't lost his nose at all. He got it in his pocket, but he didn't like wearing <laughs> it, and he didn't care how many people he upset. And another story tells of a man who used to come back holding up a number of fingers to show how many women he had made scream when he took his mask off. So I think that there was a, a problem with it, but equally well, I've encountered that now. When we had an exhibition at the National Army Museum, we had a set of school children who came in uh, by accident. They were led down the wrong corridor. And you could hear during the press launch while we were telling all of the newspapers what was going on, these uh, uh, noises from off-piste, off, uh, as it were. When we actually went and explained to these children what had happened, they became fascinated. And another Sidcup soldier records how rather than the children throwing things at him, which some did in, in, in and around, uh, they actually didn't show any disgust. They only showed curiosity, which is perhaps a different attitude from the adults. But it wasn't easy for them. Some coped, some didn't. Andrew Barrett. Yeah. Uh, thank you. you. You mentioned right at the start that it was a game-changer war, World War I, and that we've heard in many presentations that uh, people were erroneously setting off based on the experience of a previous war into the, into the next war. Um, Gillies and Kelsey Fry, as you know, uh, produced a report for the, war, uh, for the Army Council uh, in the interwar years in the 30s, which was the setting up of the maxillofacial units at the start of the Second War. But my understanding is, of course, there were very, very, uh, there were far fewer facial injuries in the second war of this nature than there were in the first war. And so many of the maxillofacial units ended up as increasingly as general plastic and oral surgery units. Um, and I'd just be interested to know, in a sense, Gillies and Kelsey Fry weren't ready for the second war. They were still building on the experiences of the first war. They hadn't realized it was a more mobile war, tanks, aircraft, etc., etc. Well, I think tanks and aircraft you can exclude because there are tank crews and aircraft crews from the First World War who were burned in just the same way as they were in the Second. Uh, and from that point of view, uh, one might just add that Gillies did quite a lot of burns work at Rooksdown in World War II alongside Mackindoe and <coughs> Grinstead. But you're absolutely right. The warfare was different. Um, and I, I, I have to ask, can you anticipate these things? I suspect the answer is not always... Um, because nobody really knows what's going to happen, and you have to learn on your feet. Um, and that actually does take time, which it did. But you're quite right, there, there weren't that many. I mean, there were really only four major units uh, that, that did plastic work in World War II. Rooksdown with Gillies, and then there was Kilner at Roehampton, and then Stoke Mandeville, uh, Molem at uh, uh, St. Albans, and uh, Mackinder at East Grinstead. But when you, when you think about it, you have to bear in mind that they were actually the only four surgeons in the UK who were doing any plastic work between the war at all. So they had to recreate what had happened at Sidcup. There were over 100 medical staff at Sidcup 
And they'd all dissipated. They'd all gone back to what they were doing before. They went back to being ENT surgeons or dentists or whatever. So that all had to be recreated, let alone adjust to a different type of warfare. in an exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery recently with the comment that, that they had, it was almost the first time they'd come into the public arena. Um, do you think there has been a change in tolerance and of understanding? I'm not sure there's been a change on the part of the public. There's certainly been a change on the part of surgeons and artists. Tonks himself said that he didn't think that the painting, the pastels, should be exhibited publicly for the gratification of a, gore, a, a ghoulish public. Uh, and that attitude persisted for quite a long time. And bear in mind that, in a sense, they are actually medical notes. So you don't really want to promulgate medical notes, particularly where the subjects are identified, which a number of them are, although um, between us, Brown and Sam Alberti and I have managed to identify more. Um, I don't think that the public's attitude has changed, but our attitude to letting the public see these things has changed. Um, and there are other people who have that attitude. If you listen to Robert Fisk talking about what reporters are allowed to show from the front line, whether they be television reporters or whatever, you will hear that there is still an awful lot, and I'm sure our military, current military colleagues would uh, agree with this, there is an awful lot that isn't shown and that's because you don't want to frighten people too much. But you look at the scale of these things, we're dealing with something that's very different, and a public that's very different. Now, if there's a blue-on-blue -blue incident in the Gulf War and eight men are blown up in a personnel carrier, everyone says, stop the war, I want to get off. Bear in mind, the first day of the Somme, there are 56,000 casualties, and people accepted that. It's a very, very different ballgame. We have different attitudes in that sense. Right, well, at that point, well, what an amazing, yeah. Well, what a wonderful day we've had. The genesis of this meeting was, of course, the centenary of the First World War. But uh, hasn't it been marvellous to hear such terrific speakers, starting with before the Peninsular War, the Peninsular War, the Crimean War, and we've now come to the end of the day with another good day to come. Uh, I'm actually completely silenced by that last presentation. It's very difficult to think coherently when you think of what those people went through. And I think that's a good note to stop. So can I conclude by thanking the speakers who've been absolutely terrific for a wonderful day. Uh, and ask you all to look forward to tomorrow, where I hope we'll all be here, and to remind those few of you who don't know the building that the bar, you just keep going straight ahead, and it's open. Yeah. <laughs>